So I am Tim. I am one of the pastors at Village Church of Bartlett with Matt, and uh, we're glad to be able to just be able to share with you today. And one of the things that I do at Village Church of Bartlett, of other things, we all kind of wear multiple hats, is I'm kind of the project manager. And one of the projects we're managing right now at the Bartlett campus is a new storage garage. So last Friday, we put up four walls and wrapped them all in Tyvek, and uh, we ran out of material. So more material is supposed to show up this week, and so if you are a builder or if you'd like to participate in putting a roof on this garage, uh, the plan is this coming Saturday at 8 o'clock, you can come and bring your hammer, bring a tool belt, and probably good to bring a tape measure, um, because we want to make sure that this is done well. And so if you'd like to be a part of that, come on out and uh, join in the fun. Uh, Also, one of the other projects that I man is for the Easter Egg Extravaganza. What I head up is the setup team. So I know many of you um, have no, you understand that if we're going to have an event like that, we have to set things up. Well, there's three big uh, areas that we have to set up, drive stakes in the ground, pull a bunch of the snow fence around. So if you'd like to do that as well, you can sign up the, on the website, or you could talk to me after the service. So let me get into the message today. You know, before we had GPS, the story is told about a little boy and his dad who went to a distant land, and they had to travel there by a sailing ship. And on this sailing ship, the little boy was fascinated as he watched. He watched all these sailors work. And as they were doing their job back and forth, he was just mesmerized by all the work that it took to keep this sailing ship going every day. And he noticed that every evening, the captain would come out uh, on the deck in the evening, and he would point this funny-looking object up at the sky. And he was very curious about this. So he asked his dad, what, what was the captain doing every night? And the captain explained to his son, son, the captain is using a sextant. And that sextant points up at the stars. And as he takes that measurement, he can tell if we're going in the right direction, if we're heading heading, uh, in the place that we we, want to go. That is exactly what corporate worship does for the follower of Christ. It keeps us heading in the right direction. It keeps us focused, and it gives us kind of a a starting point and a check-in point of, is my worship with God, is it going in the right direction? We need to do that from time to time. And one of the beauties of coming together in a corporate type of worship is that we get this bearing. We get to check in with each other, and we get to be led by people that we trust in leadership, and we we really find out, am I heading in the right direction in my walk with God? So last week's message, as Brent explained, was Matt shared with us about how Jesus transformed our worship. When we went from Old Testament worship of taking and sacrificing animals for the forgiveness of our sin to where Jesus came and replaced that, and not just replaced it, but fulfilled what those animals were really a type of and what they really were pointing towards. Jesus transformed our worship, and that's why when we come together in a time like this, this is a special occasion. This is something that is unique to the followers of God. Let me just refresh our memories. Some of you were here last week and some of you were new. And so let me just go back and kind of build on what Matt said last week. He said several things. One of the first things he said was, worship does not equal music. 
So often we, have, we fall into the trap that we believe our worship time is the music. It's what these people up here do. These people up here do. And we, we get this mentality that we have worship, then we have preaching. But is that really what the Bible talks about when corporate worship? Music does not equal our worship. Our worship is everything that we do in our life, or is at least it is expected by the writers of the New Testament. He also said this, feelings do not necessarily equal fruitfulness or righteousness. You know, I think emotions are important. I'm a pretty emotional guy some of the time, right, honey? Some of the time. Not all of the times, but some of the time. You know, and I know many of us, we, we're, some are more emotional than others. Emotions do not, are not necessarily good or bad. But they must be checked with Scripture. And our emotions have to go back and say, okay, what does the Bible say about how I'm feeling or what I'm thinking? Sensing the Holy Spirit or not sensing the Holy Spirit in corporate worship doesn't mean that He is or is not working. And I'm going to build on that statement a little bit later. He also said this, Our Western culture influences us more than we want to acknowledge. We live in a culture of individualism. It's all about me. Our children at the very early age learn this word, two-letter word, me. Me and mine. And they know everything is about them. And we have a whole culture, we have a whole society, it's all about me and about what I want. There's another culture, though, that I think developing world cultures have. And it is a, what's called, a, I call it a tribal community or, or a community mindset, where it's not about the individual, but it's about what, what I do and what I think. How does that affect my community? How does it affect my tribe? And so some cultures are like that, and, but yet ours is all about the person. He also said that busyness is normal today. I don't know about you, but I look at my, my calendar, and it is amazing about how busy we are. And I know it's just not me. I know that many of you are busy people. You know, we, we are quick to point out the person that we feel is lazy because we look at their calendar and they have margin in their calendar. And sometimes we wear this, pride, this, this badge of busyness as like, you know, an honored position. Consumerism, Matt said, is inside all of us more than we want to admit. And it's inside of all of us here in this room today. Often we come into a community time, a corporate time of worship, and it's all about, well, what's God going to do for me today? And then he finally... Um, made this statement, true corporate worship always takes place on God's terms and in his presence. So with those pieces that Matt built for us on our foundation, I want to build on that. I want to talk about our worship here corporately. Now, the Bible does talk about two kinds of worship, whether it's in the Old Testament or New Testament, but it does talk about individual worship. And that is where we are expected to worship the Lord on our own. We're not expected to go all week long and save ourselves for the corporate worship. You know, I'm a sports guy. I, I've always loved sports. You know, and 
often Christians, here's the way they work. I don't need to practice through the week. I'll just come, on, come in for the game, and I'll be ready to play game time. But individual worship is really like the practice all week long. And the better we practice during the week, the better we'll play the game when it comes our time to get in the game. Both individual and corporate worship are important in the lives of God's children. Both contain similar elements, but not exactly the same. But both individual and corporate worship are for slightly different reasons. And I'm going to focus mainly on just our corporate worship. And I want to be very clear, just like I was talking about that practice thing. The better we do individual worship on our own, the more healthy that we develop an attitude of worship on our own, the better our corporate worship will be when we come together. I'm a kind of a simple guy, so I'm just going to give you two simple big, big ideas, big points today. And the first one is, if our corporate worship is going to be right, we need to have the proper elements. But when it comes to what are the elements in our corporate worship time, the Bible has very, it, it, it gives us hints of what the New Testament church did when they came together to worship, but it doesn't give us specific details, so I want to share with you Acts 2.42, and you guys should know that. Some of you should know that because when Craig was originally meeting together in a small group, I think you guys were called Acts 2.42, right? So I want to refresh our memories for those that know about that. And for the rest of you, Acts 2.42 gives us hints of what the early church corporate worship time looked like. Let me share with you what those are. Acts 2.42, we read these words. And they, that is the Christians, the church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. We have four elements that were in place in, in the time that the early church came together to worship corporately. But we don't have details. We don't know how long did they preach. Did they do announcements? Did they not do announcements? How many songs did they sing? How many songs did they not sing? Did they sing only psalms? Or did they also sing other songs that they made up? We don't have those kind of details. You know, I'm a historian. Not a historian. I love history. I guess I'm an amateur historian. But I love the history of the early church. And there is a guy who wrote, uh, many of the early church fathers, they wrote about what their early church worship service looked like. There was a guy in uh, one, about 150 AD, so about three generations, maybe two generations, after the apostles, Justin Martyr wrote what was called the first apology. And, and I know we normally think of an apology as I have to say I'm sorry for something, but an apology is really isn't always that 
uh, it is an explanation. And so Justin Martyr's apology at the end of this uh, document, he explains what the early church looked like when they came together for corporate worship. And I want to read those. It's going to be on the screen. I want you to follow along. I have some things highlighted. I'm not going to uh, mention. You, you can read as fast as I can, probably faster. Um, and you'll be able to see what Justin Martyr, how he explained corporate worship in the 150s A.D. On the day called Sunday, when the, uh, gather, there is a gathering together in the same place, all who lived in a given city or a rural district, in the memoirs of the apostles. So that would be the New Testament writings and the writings of the prophets. So that would be the Old Testament scriptures are read. So very quickly, Justin says, Justin Martyr says that when the church came together to worship corporately, they would read the scriptures as long as time permits. Now, aren't you glad we don't worship like that today? Now, I'm a little worried about Bartlett because Craig hasn't preached in, what, eight weeks, six weeks? So I'm wondering how much he's got saved up. I promise I will not do that to you as, time, as long as time permits. But that's the way they worship, worship back then. Then, when the reader, reader ceases, the president or the pastor, in a discourse admonishes and urges the imitation of these good things. In other words, there's preaching. Next, we all rise together and send up prayers. When, these, uh, when we cease from our prayers, bread is presented with wine and water. So that's communion. The president, in the same manner, sends up prayers and thanksgivings uh, givings according to his ability. And the people sing out their assent, saying the Amen. And distribution and participation of the elements for which thanks have been given is made to each person. And those who are not present, they are sent by the deacons. So you can see there, there's an there's a interesting element that he gives. That for the people that are not in the corporate worship time, communion is then distributed, it's taken by the deacons so that they can participate in, in uh, communion as well. Those who have means and are willing, each according to his own choice, gives what he wills, and what is collected is deposited. So in other words, there is an offering taken with the president, and he provides for the orphans and widows, those who are in need on account of sickness or some other cause, those who are in bonds, strangers who are sojourning, and in word he becomes the protector of all who are in need. And then he summarizes this. We all are assembled, uh, we all assemble, assembly, we all make our assembly in common on Sunday, since it is the first day, first day, on which God cha uh, changed the darkness and matter and made the world. And Jesus Christ, our Savior, rose from the dead on the same day. So what I want to do is I want to take the Acts 2.42 passage and what Justin Martyr said about the early church and what it looked like when it came together in corporate worship and I want to pull out some of the things that I think are important for us today. Because both of them share some common elements in corporate worship. So in no particular order, okay, let me be clear, in no particular order. Actually, the order is from the Acts passage, but doesn't mean that the first is the first importance, okay? There is teaching, which is the exposition of Scripture, 
both in the Acts passage and in Justin Martyr, they explain that there is a preaching, there is an admonishment to follow what the Scripture says. Then there's fellowship. This is the community aspect of us coming together, breaking a bread, sharing personal ministry together, and it's all the one another's of the New Testament. So in the epistles, we read all kinds of, and one another, and one another, and one another. It's that corporate element of when we come together, we encourage one another, we pray for one another, we do things for one another. So it's the fellowship time. Then there's the symbols, the symbols of communion and baptism. We call these ordinances. I know some churches call them the sacraments, but we believe that they are ordinances, they are instructions that God gave his church to practice, to remind them of what he did on the cross and what we are to do in following him. Typically at Village Church, we practice every week communion. Last week in Bartlett, we did baptism, but we will usually have some element some symbol, either communion or baptism, in almost every one of our worship services when we come together. Then there's the offerings. Both mention offerings, both the Acts passage and Justin Martyr. They mention that when the church came together corporately, there was an offering taken or offering given. Since the very beginning, when God's people came together as the Hebrews worshipped, both in the tabernacle and in the temple, and then the church came together, when they were meeting at homes or whether they were meeting in a building, there were always some type of sacrificial offering made. And the key there is sacrificial. So I just want to pause here and ask you a, a, a very pointed question. When it comes to offering, how is it? sacrificial for you often we just give out of our abundance we give out of our excess it doesn't it it doesn't hurt it doesn't it's not a sacrifice let me share with you a little story from second samuel 24 many of you heard of a guy named david king david David was a man after God's own heart, but David had made mistakes. And in, in, in 2 Samuel 24, David has made a royal mistake, meaning he made a mistake as the king, and his royal mistake is costing the lives of his people. He counted the people, and God told him, you don't need to do that. I've got this. It doesn't matter how many people there are. You don't need to do that. David counted the people. He had a census in spite of what God told him. And God had to exercise divine judgment on David and the people. And at the end of this, David repents and David confesses his error and his sin. And David, <clears throat> David says, I need to worship the Lord. And he is in an area called Jerusalem. And he meets a guy there, um, Aronah. And Aronah is a Jebusite. It's interesting that this Aronah, one commentator believes he was the king of Jerusalem. And what is very interesting about this story is David ends up buying a piece of land that later becomes the Temple Mount from Aronah. So he wants to make a sacrifice. And Aronah says, I understand my king needs to make a sacrifice. I am a wealthy person. Let me offer you the wood, the animal, and and the place to offer to the Lord. 
And David makes, we read these words in Scripture. But David, but the king, said to Aronah, No, I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And if we jump over to if we were to jump over to the second chronicles passage, we find that David spends 500 shekels of gold to buy the whole land from Aronah. David knew that he it, while it was it was a nice gesture that Aronah would say, "Here, let me give you what you need to offer to the Lord." David was adamant, "No, I can't do that." Offerings to the Lord always have to be from the heart and from the pocketbook of the individual. So let's talk about this. What do our offerings look like? Well, there's an offering of praise, and we often don't consider our offering of praise an offering, especially for guys like this, because he can sing. But for guys like me, who really struggle singing, it is a sacrifice. Now, for guys like this, I'm picking on Matt because, you know, he and I have a friendship here. We can do that. For him, it's a sacrifice just to stand next to me when we sing. (laughs) And maybe you're standing or sitting next to someone that feels the same way. So our sacrifice costs us different things. But God's people have always been a singing people. We are always... Uh, expected to sing songs that met the minimum requirement of praise to God. Our music has always been in some form, but two primary forms when it comes to corporate worship. The first one is worship songs about God, about what he has done for his people, what he has done for us as his body, as as his church. So we have songs that are about God and about God's goodness and about God's splendor and about God's greatness. But then there's other songs, and another category is songs to God. These songs, if they're really sung from a heart that understands what these songs are, these are really prayer songs. They're very personal. They're very deep. And and there's a lot of personal pronouns in these words, that he is my God. In my Lord. Now, I'm of the opinion that one of these styles versus the other style, one is not better than the other. We need songs about God and we need songs to God. But there, we've always had songs that fit into those two categories. Especially if you read through the book of Psalms, you'll see that the book of Psalms even have these two categories of songs. We have them today. We, have, we had them in the old hymns. Just look through the old hymns and you'll see their songs about God and their songs to God. Contemporary worship, about God and to worship, and to God. Then we also have the offering of prayer. Originally, Matt said this last, last week, that Jesus transformed our worship in the sense that in the Old Testament, when people came to pray to God, they came to him with fear and, and, and trepidation. They came to hear They came to God in in trembling and fear out of reverence for God. But Jesus changed all that. He says that you can now come boldly to the throne of God. 
that we have a great intercessor in Jesus, that we don't have to fear God. Yes, we need to respect him. Yes, we need to understand that he is a righteous and holy God. But as his children, we have a whole new dimension on how we can pray to God. And then there's the offering of substance. In the Old Testament, we have these examples of animal sacrifices, offerings of substance and first fruits. We also have money offerings. Uh, In today's world, it's time. Time is a huge substance. Aren't you glad we don't have to bring animals to corporate worship anymore? But I want to challenge you. I've been to Haiti. I've been in other world, uh, other developing world countries where they still bring animals. And they'll bring animals as a love offering, as an offering to the church, whether it's for the pastor or whether it's for the congregation. And they will say, out of my substance, I don't have money. But I do have a chicken or a goat, or I have, I have some animal that I want to donate to the church. So we still do that in developing countries. Sometimes we do that when, when we have potluck dinners, right? We just call it something different. But this, this offering of substance, especially when it comes to animals or first fruits, in the Old Testament, it was always to appease God or to, to, to make consent to a sin. It is also to help with the work of ministry in the priests. Because in the Old Testament, priests were always allowed to have a portion of that animal offering. In the New Testament, in today's time, we still have some of these sacrificial offerings of substance. And they're always for the similar reasons, purposes that they had in the Old Testament. But today we say we give to further the kingdom of God, further the work of God and his kingdom, further the work of God's work here in this community of believers. But it is also for the uh, provision for the pastors, those who are carrying out the work of the Lord as well. So yes, I believe in supporting your local pastor. But what about tithing? People always, you know, when it comes to this thing about offerings of substance, you know, in the Old Testament, there was a principle of tithing, giving 10%, 10% of your income, and that practice that. Now, the problem with that is by the time we got to Jesus and the the early church, the the earlier followers of, of, of the Lord, they had a whole system that they had come out of, of temple tax. And they were giving as much as 20%, not just 10% of their income by the time he started adding all this up. So what about us today? Is tithing for us today? Well, I believe it is. But I want to be careful when it comes to this by by just giving you a little caveat. For some people, 10% of their income is a stretch. And I understand because of certain past decisions to give 10% of your income to the kingdom work of God might be stretching your budget. I get that. But I also want to say this. For some of us, God has so blessed us that to stop at 10% is not right. You know, there are stories of of people in the past that they gave 90% of their income, like J.C. Penney and Woolworth and Caterpillar, 
those guys gave 90% of their income to the further work of the kingdom, and they lived on 10%. Now, I'm not suggesting that we all start there either. But we need to have this mindset, is my offering a substance to the Lord, is it sacrificial or is it just, is it just a penance? Is it just, okay, that's enough to make everybody happy. I've, they've seen that I give something. Well, let me move on. Because I know we're getting on touchy subject here. What's missing of these four elements? What is missing in our corporate worship together that we feel is very important for the church to do? Has anyone seen it? I'll give you a chance to call it out. Oh, it's up there? Evangelism. That's what's missing, okay? Evangelism is what's missing in our corporate worship. But often... Churches at the end of the service, I grew up in an age where we had an altar call at the end of every service. There was an invitation at the end of every corporate worship time that we invited people to come forward and receive Jesus as their Savior. Is that biblical? Is that wrong? Is it not wrong? I know, I know in many churches today, we don't do that, and churches don't do that. So the question is, is evangelism a part of, or should it be a part of, our corporate worship time? Well, to answer that question, I'm going to throw out three words um, that I think most of us will understand. But I want to be clear, I'm not comfortable with any of these terms. I really don't like any of these terms. I know that you know, a term has to be used to explain what something means, but I'm not real comfortable with any of these. The first one is seeker-driven. A seeker-driven corporate worship service looks like this. The call to worship would be a Beatles song, you know. And we're, we're, the, the, the service is designed to intentionally not make a non-church, non-Christian person feel uncomfortable. And so they will do, churches do this. They do secular songs, and it may, I, I picked on the Beatles, but it could be, you know, our Garth Brooks song as well. And, it, and the worship team would play that as people come in, or maybe even during their, their singing time of their worship service, just so that the people in the congregation who are non-church, non-Christians, don't feel, oh, I know that song. I can sing along with that song. I don't feel intentionally left out. Seeker-driven churches will have messages, and they will have things, and it goes beyond just the music. It'll go to, they won't have a cross. They won't have any symbols of Christianity whatsoever because those can be offensive to non-church, non-Christians. Well, there's another kind of corporate worship philosophy, and that's called seeker-sensitive. And seeker-sensitive, we will, the, the service is really designed for the believer, the follower of Jesus Christ. So it's, it's designed for the, the follower, the child of God, but they will do things that will intentionally not make a non-church, non-Christian feel uncomfortable. Biblical words that we come across in reading the biblical text sometimes are kind of like up here. And if you're not a follower, if you, didn't ra- if you were not raised in the church, if you're not a follower of God, and you come across these words like propitiation and sanctification, you're like, I, I don't, you're using language that I don't use every day, and I'm not sure what that means. A seeker-sensitive church will explain those words. And they'll say, okay, this is what that word means. Then there are the seeker-hostile churches. And by seeker-hostile, what do I mean by that? 
Well, the service, the philosophy is the corporate worship time is designed for the child of God, the follower of God, to worship God on his terms. But they will, not in, they will intentionally not explain those theological terms. They will intentionally not do things that will make the non-church, non-Christian person uncomfortable. Now, I don't know about you, but let me explain to you what, what the mentality is here, okay? How many of you have ever gone to some kind of event and you were a guest to someone else and they come and they start using inside language? They start using terms that only the inside people in that organization understand. You ever been there? I've been to meetings like that. And pretty quickly, do you not feel left out? I mean, yeah, you know, people might be friendly, but they're using terms and they're, they're doing things together that you just don't understand. At Village Church, our philosophy is which one of those? Seeker sensitive. We believe that the worship time together corporately has to be on God's terms and in his plan, and it has to be for the child of God to praise the God of the world. And we're not, we're not going to do things that are intentionally um, uh, aggravating to a non-church, non-Christian person. But at the same time, we will not go as far as moving our, our singing time to, to what would be culturally understood songs. Because our songs, our worship, have to be directed towards God. Does that make sense? Now, I know a lot of times, you know, we have these conversations. What is our church? What is our church philosophy? And I've had a lot of conversations with other pastors, and they're very adamant that one of these is better than the other. I, I, I do believe that. I do believe one is better than the other. And that's why I go to Village Church. But I think the Apostle Paul would go to Village Church. And let me share with you why I think that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, Paul is talking to a really jacked up church. And I, I, I don't have any problem calling them that. I know that's a, a culturally understood word. All right? The Corinthian church was really messed up. They really had things out of alignment at, in several places. And the Apostle Paul is talking to them in chapter 14 about what, what's going to happen when you guys come together in corporate worship and things start happening and outsiders start coming in. Listen to what he says in chapter 14, verse 23. If therefore the whole church comes together, now that means for corporate worship, and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, so those non-church, non-Christian people come in. Listen to what they'll say. They will, will they not say that you are out of your minds? They will, they will look at you and say, this is weird. This doesn't make sense. I think Paul is saying there that the corporate worship of God's family, of God's people, his local church, needs to be seeker-sensitive. We don't need to be seeker That would be seeker-hostile, by the way. Well, what about our proper motivations when it comes to corporate worship? We need to have proper motivations. So when we come together, what should our heart be like? What should be going on inside, not just on the outside? You would not believe how many times I've heard someone say, you don't need to go to church to be a Christian. Have you heard that before? You don't need to go to church to be a Christian. I've heard that lots of times. 
Down south, you hear it a little differently. You don't need to go to church to be a Christian. <laughs> I agree. You know, every time someone says that, I have to back my emotions up. I have to back up what I'm about to say, and I just need to process. And I don't know about you. I know some people are very quick in their response, but I have to think and slow myself down. You know, I have to tell myself, maybe they're saying that because they hope that's true, but they're really not sure. Because they have heard that you got to go to church to be a Christian. But maybe they've heard it somewhere. Well, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. So maybe there's a little confusion there and they're hoping that it's true. Maybe they've been hurt by someone in the church. Maybe they've been hurt at a church. And they, they truly believe and they, they say, well, I can be a Christian and not go to church because that's church people and that church has hurt me. Maybe they're just trying to give themselves an excuse for not going to church that day. Maybe you've even told yourself that a time or two or three or four or five. I know I have. And I know that somebody, well, you're a pastor. You're telling yourself you don't need to go to church. Yeah, there's times that, you know, we're human too. Right, Matt? We, we sometimes have to tell ourselves, no, I need to go to church because that's my job. But I don't really want to go. Maybe that's too personal. But... We all sometimes tell ourselves, you know what, I need an excuse not to go to church. Sometimes we think, well, it'd be better if I went to the Church of the Holy Comforter today. Or maybe I would like to go to Bedside Baptist Church. Or St. Mattress Church. Or Pastor's Pillows and Deacon's Sheets. I'll go to that church today and God will be okay with me. Have you not felt that way? Especially you wake up one Sunday morning and you look outside and there's six inches of snow and it's still coming down. Or you look at the thermometer and it's like minus 10. It's like, uh, I think I'll stay home today and worship God, you know, in, you know, bedside Baptist. You know, maybe you look outside on Sunday morning. It's a beautiful day. And I just bought a new motorcycle and I'm sure I can worship God on my new motorcycle today. Every time I hear that statement, you don't need to go to church to be a Christian, I do have to start processing, what would I say? And I would think, you know what, you're right. You don't need to go to church to be a Christian, but you can't be a Christ follower and not go to church. If I'm going to follow Jesus, I have to go to church. I have to, and I know that may sound legalistic, and I know that might sound like, well, you know, man, that's just another rule that I've got to follow. But should we, as God's children, as God's people, not want to come together and worship together? Should, should, it, should corporate worship really be that important to us? I think so. I don't think it's legalism to, to say, I can't follow Jesus if I don't go to church. You know, the, the New Testament knows nothing about a person following God and growing in our knowledge and our love for the Lord outside the local church. The New Testament knows nothing about, I come to faith in Jesus and I go off to the mountain to pray for 10 years by myself. I mean, that's another organization that tells us to do that. What the New Testament tells us is we need each other. We need corporate worship for what it can do for us in our walk with him. Jesus died for the local church. He died to give life to the local church. It's that important to Jesus. You realize that three-fourths of the New Testament is written to local churches? 
That's how important it is for local churches to come together and corporately worship and get this thing called corporate worship right. It's that important. So what are these motivations that we should have? Well, the first one, I think the one that is the greatest, is a love for God. An understanding of the reverence that I should have and appreciation that I should have for what God has done for me as an individual and what God wants to do for my church. That should be our greatest motivation every time when it comes to corporate worship. And as a reminder of this, both in, the, both in the New Testament, but specifically in the Old Testament. Because you realize that when the Old Testament followers of God came together to worship God, they would have to travel a long distance, either to the tabernacle or to the temple to worship. And in six different places, the local uh, corporate worship leader would encourage the Hebrews with these words, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. We need to be reminded that God loves us. He loves us in an incredible way. And we, would, we should want to come and worship with God's family and lift his praise. Well, there's another motivation that we should have, and that's the love for God's people. Remember that thing called fellowship as one of the elements of proper worship? And often we think of, well, the worship time is the singing time and the preaching time and the offering time. But remember, both in the Acts 2.42 and in the Justin Martyr, both of those talked about how our fellowship time is part of our corporate worship. It is that important that we should be together as a family. Again, Jesus and the New Testament writers know nothing about a Christian growing in their worship for God outside the local church. God has gifted each of his children with special gifts and talents and abilities to worship together and to put those talents and gifts to use in the local church. The local church corporate worship is as important as a family member coming together uh, as a family. Now think about this. I, I call myself a member of a family, but I don't ever attend a mealtime with the rest of my family. I don't have any chores personal ownership of anything that the family does. When the family comes together to celebrate some holiday or birthday, I don't show up. The Bible is clear. If I am going to be a child of God, that means I need to be in relationship with the family of God. And I share my gifts and talents and abilities and time as we worship together because it's that important. The writer of Hebrews had to warn against this because even in that first century, even in that early church, followers of God, people in the local church, started giving giving themselves the excuse, I'll go to, you know, the Church of the Holy Comforter this weekend and I don't need to go. He said this, Let us consider how to stir one another up in love and good works, not neglecting the meat to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's that important. And again, it's that consumer mentality that we have to kill, that the reason we come together is so that we can encourage one another. It's that one another piece. 
Another motivating person that we need to reflect on and we need to consider is the Holy Spirit. He's the one that gives us the power to get up, you know, when it's 10 degrees below zero and go to church. He's the one that encourages us when we'd rather just stay home. He's the one that empowers our worship when we come together to make it unique and special. You know, at Village Church, we believe that our worship, our corporate worship, has two primary focuses. We call it spirit and truth. John, John chapter 4, Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, and he's mentioning that those who worship the Lord have to worship him in spirit and in truth, both in what the Holy Spirit is empowering to make happen in the truth about God and his word. You can follow up more about that on your own. But the Holy Spirit is the member of the Godhead who empowers our worship in a unique and special way. It is special when we come together in worship. It is unique. It is not just, okay, a bunch of individuals are coming together. It's us coming together as his family. So let me give you two cautions, a few cautions about the Holy Spirit, though. I don't know about you, but I told you I'm a sports fan. And one of the things I love about this time of year is the NCAA tournament. And if you've watched the athletes at the end of a, a, a game, if you watch how they celebrate or how they seemingly don't celebrate, I want to use what happens at the end of one of those games and compare that to the way we worship in, corporate, in a corporate setting. Some athletes at the end of the competition, they celebrate. They jump up and down and they sh- swing around And they're just ecstatic. Some Christians do that in worship service. Some give congratulations to their teammates. They personally don't jump around and scream, you know, that they won. But they will go over and they will hug their fellow teammate or they'll high five them. You know, and they'll, they'll celebrate what the teammate has done. Some cry. You know, for 20 some years, I was never a crier. Right, Renee? But something happened, you know, several years ago that I became a crier. And I get emotional whether I'm preaching or at a movie or, you know, I don't know what it is. You know, at first I thought it was grandkids. And then I realized it was probably teenagers. (laughs) That's what makes me cry. Some athletes show no external emotion at all. They've just won the game. They've just made the, the, the point two, you know, last, last moment prayer of a shot. And it goes in, and he's like, way to go. And they just kind of walk off like it meant nothing. Some of us, when we're in corporate worship, we don't express our emotions externally. Now, inside all of those athletes are being affected and being changed by what they just experienced in that event. And that's the way it should be with us. When we come together, regardless of what it looks like on the outside, what's happening on the inside is what is most important. Second thing I want to point out about a caution is, as human beings, we have the ability to create an environment we able, we're able to, you know, do smoke and incense, and we're able to create a setting that is pretty cool. And I understand that, and that's okay. And as someone who speaks and, and is able to stir people up, 
As human beings, we have the ability, whether it's a worship leader or whether it's the preacher or whether it's someone else, we have the ability to stir up emotion. We need to be careful. We need to be really careful about that emotion thing. Just because we sense a lot of activity doesn't mean the Holy Spirit's working. And just because we look out and say, well, people are just sitting there with this blank look on their face, doesn't mean that God is not speaking to them in a unique way when we come together. We need to be careful in making those judgments on what is and is not happening in our corporate worship time. The greatest sign of what God is doing through the Holy Spirit is transformational fruit. About what happens inside here, but also what happens when we leave here. And we start meditating and thinking on, well, at that service, at that time that we came together, this song really affected me. Or this conversation with somebody really affected me. Or something that was said in the message. Or something that someone said in the lobby. Or or the time together. So we go away and we're thinking about those things. And then our life begins to transform. That is where we know the Holy Spirit's working. Let me talk about expectations, distractions, though. Because I think that's a motivating factor that we need to consider. These two last points. The best way to enhance our corporate worship is to come through those doors every week with an expectation and an anticipation that God is going to show up. He is going to speak to me individually and us corporately in a unique way. And we come in with this expectation. I don't know if it's going to be in the music time. I don't know if it's going to be in the preaching time. I don't know if it's going to be in the fellowship time or the conversation time. I don't know when it's going to happen, but I'm expecting God is going to show up. And when we come with that kind of anticipation, expectation, our corporate worship as a body goes to a whole new place. Because now we're not just going through the motions. Now we're coming with an expectation. It's like going to that NCAA game and expecting this game is going to be tight. In the last, last 30 seconds, either team could win. And it's that expectation that we need to have here as we come together as well. We need to come also with an expectation that somewhere during this time, God is going to use me not to bless me, but to allow me to bless someone else. It's that expectation that, God, you're going to use me somehow. Somehow, this person that is broken and and has got problems, you're going to use me somehow as your instrument to bless someone else. Having that kind of mentality will be life-changing for us. But what about distractions? Why is it that on Sunday morning... Things go raw. I mean, like this morning. You know, I'm sitting back there. I think I've got everything in together for a message, and I realize uh, we don't have any slides, and I can't find them anywhere on my computer. What, what is going on? Why is it on Sunday morning, on your way to church, you and your spouse get in an argument? Does it, does it happen to you, or is it just, just us? Or is it Saturday night? It's Saturday night, not Sunday morning. Sometimes Satan gets an early start. You know, we were great all week long. But Saturday night or Sunday morning, we, we have a, a spit. I mean, we got to fight it out. I mean, what's going on? The kids misbehave on Sunday morning. You guys were fine yesterday. We played fine. Now you don't want to put your shoes on. We got to go. What's going on? You know, 
The dog runs away. You open the door. You're, you're just out there to pick up the newspaper. And the dog runs out and he runs down the street. Sunday morning, why? Dog, are you, you know, possessed here? Get back here. The car breaks down. Something happens on Sunday morning. We live in a broken world and we have an enemy that really does not like it when we come together to worship. Right? The only caution, the only advice I have is please do your very best not to allow those distractions to rob you of the joy that is unique when we come together. So what? All right, I've been talking up here for too long, right? So what? What does it mean when we come together corporately? Why is it so special? What is our motivation? Should I recheck, should I check and reconnect and ask the hard question, what's my motivation been when it comes to coming together as God's people? I believe when we come together with this expectation and this anticipation, it changes our corporate worship. Don't you? Remember that sextant thing? That thing, that funny looking object that the captain looked up at the stars with? Today we use GPS. And today we need every now and then a realignment or a check-in. Am I going in the right direction, Lord? Is my worship right? Do I need to, you know, don't you love when you're your, uh, the voice on your GPS starts screaming, recalculating, recalculating, and it gets, seems like it gets louder and louder. Recalculating. In other words, what it's saying, you idiot, turn around. I'm telling you to go the other direction. No, it's probably not saying that. I know that. But it is trying, that voice, that GPS is trying to tell us, hey, you need to, you need to go in a better direction. Let me, let me help you. Let me help you stay aligned where, where you really need to go. We need to have that kind of mentality. So how is your motivation when it comes to your corporate worship? Does it need to change? What about your expectation? What about your anticipation when it comes to coming together as God's family? Does that need to change? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that we've had time to investigate, to look into how it is so unique that you have given your church the opportunity to worship on a weekly basis, to praise you as a family, to praise you as brothers and sisters in a unique and a special way. I truly do ask that you will challenge each of our hearts that our motivation, our anticipation, our expectation is that you will show up somewhere every week in a unique and special way and either speak to us or use us to bless someone else. Father, thank you for our time and thank you that we can celebrate a risen Savior, a life-changing Jesus. Not a dead Jesus on a cross, but a resurrected Jesus that wants to change us into your perfect image. In Jesus' name, amen.